time Respect the law, commit no crime And all the while you seem to find your way Cash your chips, redeem the check Fill your coffers, invest in tech And all the while you seem to find your way Your cell phone hums, the morning comes And battles lost and battles won The dream of battles yet to come And when it's all just said and done To relax and have some fun My favorite podcast has begun Cool with a K With K Gray Hello and welcome to Cool with a K, the fun and factual podcast by Greg Spencer and Kirsten Dreyer. I'm Kirsten Dreyer. I'm Greg Spencer. Still. (laughs) No. No, That's good. You're still Greg Spencer. It's a good place to be. If you're ever not Greg Spencer, let me know. It's the opposite of movement. I'm still Greg Spencer. (laughs) Awesome. Stationary. There you go. Well, but do you know what's not stationary? What? The Hatsburg's genetic line. <laughs> yes, that is accurate. Why are we the way we are? Genetics. It's all in our genes. We have codons. So essentially, when you think about the reason you are, we're like a computer program. We have base genetic code that creates our genetic variation of what we are. There's different traits, you know, head, neck, chest, abdomen, pelvis. Why are they the way they are? From our hair color to our color of our eyes to our body proportions. It's all in our genes. Now, when we have two parents, the way that it's, it's somewhat random in the way that we code, we have half of our genetic material from our mother, half of our genetic material from our father, and it gets sorted out from there. Mm-hmm. Very kind of a random process. It is. And we're going to jump into how this tiny little detail of basic code is the fall of the Habsburgs. Yes, indeed. We're going to back up just a little bit, though, and we're going to talk about where we left off in this first part of our episode. So when we last left the Habsburgs, we had talked a little bit about how they had had a very long and successful line uh, from the 1090s and all the way on. And then we jumped into Maximilian with his very strategic and political alliance with Maria of Burgundy and a little bit about their line. And when we left, the Habsburgs are really in the, the height of their power. They are all over Europe. They're all these strong political marriages, they're everywhere. Maria Theresa's had 16 children, and she's intermarried with all of them to various strong political houses. And we're going to jump into how the Habsburgs got in trouble. And to do that, I need to take a little bit of a step back and talk about the Dark Ages and the Holy Roman Empire. So when we think about the Dark Ages as a whole, we think about the fall of the Roman Empire. And that's actually not accurate. It's not a dramatic fall. It's not like somebody rushed into the Holy Roman Empire, set it on fire, and then there was nothing. It's more like the lights went out. They sunk into obscurity, really. The power came, went uh, back to Rome. It kind of got insular and tiny, and they petered along, and all the provinces and places the power had expanded to, like Europe, sort of just fell into disrepair. There was no money flowing in, no government flowing in. The capital was Constantinople for a while after the somewhat decline of the city of Rome itself. Mm-hmm. Um, wonderful city. I've never actually been there personally. Have you ever been to Rome? I have been to Rome. I haven't been to Constantinople, though. And and it's fun because it's it's a beautiful, beautiful city. But you've got to imagine that it was the center, this mecca, expanding out all over Europe and like funding it, pulling resources from it. And then as that power slowly crumbles, they pull back and become more insular. They shift their capital. They keep their power kind of close to themselves. And all the places that they were in, in charge of sort of just fall into disrepair. Gone to the days of Pax Romana this idea that Rome could protect. There was this Roman peace that extended outwards. Mm -hmm. Like all roads lead to Rome, but if no one's maintaining the roads, no one goes anywhere. Does it take a Rhodes Scholar to say that? (laughs) 
<laughs> so what happened over the course of that few hundred years? Well, as power whittles away, governments whittle away. Power vacuums create a loss of knowledge, a loss of culture, a loss of record keeping. Really, Europe sort of regresses, which, frankly, is something that's been hotly debated by scholars. To say that the Dark Ages is really Eurocentric, because it totally throws away all of the Golden Ages that are popping up all over other parts of the world. Or the fact that not all history is written down. It could be an oral history. Absolutely. Who's to say that the history that the people who were living in the Dark Ages had was any less culturally interesting or robust? But we have to call a spade a spade. There was no record keeping. There was not a high count that we can know of, of things like literacy. Really, the center of most communities, the center of most education, if you wanted to be literate, you probably went to the church. If you were even lucky enough to get to a church that had literate people in it. So really, there was a crumbling of public services, a fragment of power, and governments were more like landowners taxing serfs with bartering, and the world was dark, hard, and unregulated. So... Slowly, what rises out of that power vacuum? Well, small houses of families uh, that create borders and towns, cities, kingdoms, taxation, and armies begin forming. Churches gain power. Power means wealth. Wealth rises out of the ashes, and this crazy, nomadic, wild, wild west era spawns the first Holy Roman Empire. So we have Charlemagne, the first Holy Roman Empire in the 700s, and then we have this long line of succession that more or less governed by different houses. We start seeing the Holy Roman Empire, who is king of Burgundy, and that will become important through the Salin dynasty. That's important because for the next hundred years, kings that are related to Burgundy and the House of Burgundy will go in and out of the line of the papacy, and finally leading to the last Burgundy heir, which is a female, Maria of Valois in the 1400s, the Duchess of Burgundy. And she weds Maximilian mostly to get some political security in her own uh, in, in the country of Burgundy, which is having political unrest. She's the last heir. She needs to marry someone strong and powerful. Maximilian's a long and established family line with power and money and land. They marry. It's great. And they have just solidified something because Maximilian's father was the current pope and she came from a long line of people who were sitting on the, in the papacy. And now they have a marriage of the two of them. She is a, the last female heir of the Burgundies and she needs to marry someone with power and wealth and money and an established noble line. Maximilian heeds the call creates political security in her area, and because she's from a long line of people who've been sitting on the Holy Roman Empire throne, and Maximilian's father is currently Pope, that alliance creates the uh, a system that will have Habsburgs in the Holy Roman Empire and sitting on in the seat of Pope for hundreds of years to come. So the ancient old bloodline of Burgundy line is reinforced by the slightly newer, although still powerful, Habsburg line, and essentially a Game of Thrones alliance is created and kicks off several hundred years of exclusively Habsburgs in the seat of the papacy, from the 1440s to the 1710s. Become the storm or hide your face and be forlorn. The illusion 
what you choose, all you did, and you still lose. The people of that power. So now let's take a little bit of a step back. To understand the Habsburgs' unique situation, we have to take stock fully of how hard it is to keep your land, your power, your money, and your influence when you're dividing your family and marriage. It's customary at this time for marriages to combine kingdoms and wealth, but that can also mean dividing your wealth if you're marrying someone below your station. And someone whose kingdom might be full of debts, or have political unrest, or creating expensive wars isn't an alliance you want to make with somebody. And if you have lots of children, you might be dividing your kingdom up multiple times. So unless your children are marrying into houses wealthier than yours, you don't have a net gain from the marriage. And what do you do if every household isn't as wealthy as yours? So the Habsburgs sort of beat the system. They sort of fly under the radar with these strongly connected political alliances and royal family marriages, and they create the perfect trifecta. A few generations in, they are now a superiorly well-established royal line. Their family name is tied to the Catholic Church, which is another good thing for political religious reasons. They are favorites among God. They are the chosen line. And their lineage, because of all their marriages, means they have access to lots and lots of money. So if you're a smart upstart royal line, you want to get in on the Habsburgs. It sounds like a good move, right? With their eagle truly looking both ways, east and west. Yes, absolutely. The Habsburgs do a lot of marrying and quickly find out that the prominent family lines are all all have like the prominent family houses all have Habsburgs in them, and it isn't too long before they realize the best way to keep their power was to keep the marriages within familiar, pun intended family household lines. After all, you're probably not likely to invade your neighbor for wealth and territory if your neighbor is a blood relation, and you're even less likely to want that relation's kingdom if you know in a generation or two your children will be marrying. It's like playing Risk if every single piece is your color. Yeah, that's exactly what it's like. And this is actually a really smart idea politically. It's just not a very smart idea genetically. And this is where I will throw it over to you about genetics. Let's take a quick leap into genetics. No one's perfect, both aspirationally and genetically, because everybody's DNA, there's not such great genetic codes. Now, a lot of it is filtered out over time, or it becomes a recessive trait and it's not currently expressed. So you have expressive genes and recessive genes. This idea of polymorphism, where the expression of genes can be different. So even though you have something in your genetics, it won't come out unless it's combined with the same uh, gene from someone else. For instance, blue eyes is a great example of recessive trait. Now, one of the problems with the Habsburgs is that when you combine a gene with another one, and oftentimes with interbreeding, you can have repetitions of the same genetic code leading to genetic disabilities. So when you're talking about like blue eyes, that makes total sense, right? If I have blue eyes and the person I'm mingling my genes with has blue eyes, we're going to have blue-eyed kids. If they have brown eyes, they might have the blue-eyed gene or not. We're just taking a gamble. And every time that I'm uh, mixing my genes with somebody else, I have a, a certain amount of genetic diversity producing different kinds of offspring. And that's kind of the idea just to, to bring it back to sort of the macro level. Because everybody's DNA, there's not such great genetic codes. And, but you have, you, you've hit something really important on the head here, which is that things do change slowly over time. Certain genes can become expressed, expressed even stronger, or they can fade away if there's more genetic diversity to pull from. Now, that's all fine and well when you're talking about eye color, but let's say you're talking about things like hemophilia or a genetic disposition for hip dysplasia. The problem with hips and walking around, hemophilia being an extreme bleeding issue. Which is more, more the problem with um, like internal bleeding too. And mandibular prognathism, which is essentially a very severe underbite where your bottom jaw juts out in front of your front teeth. 
We all have our genes mingling with someone else in the hope that our genetic diversity makes up for anything that might be genetically undesirable. But that can't happen if two people have the same genetic weakness. And that's exactly what will happen if the gene pool gets less and less diverse, which is exactly what happens to the Habsburgs. Not right away though. This takes several generations. The Habsburgs intermarry for nearly 300 years, and it isn't until the last few generations where things become really intolerably bad, and even then, it was because certain family members were intermarrying in tighter and tighter loops. So, Maria Theresa of Habsburg married into the Lorraine line and produced 16 children, one of whom was Marie Antoinette, and by this point, there were already notable Habsburg features, like the Habsburg chin, which was mandibular prognathism, uh, or the severe overbite. Some Habsburgs only have uh, maybe, say, jutting lower lips, but then there are other Habsburgs you can see who have very clearly distended lower jaws. There was one story of a Habsburg whose lower jaw was so distended that they couldn't close their mouth entirely. And if you look at the Habsburg tree, they actually think they've tied exactly what Habsburg this trait came from very, very early on in their succession when they married out into one family line. This one dominant trait just kept getting expressed over and over and over again. And it kept getting stronger and stronger because multiple people carrying that gene were getting together and having children with that same gene. And there was also the Habsburg nose, which you can see a line from Maximilian himself. The final generations of the Habsburg royal lines, things were getting pretty dark. The infant mortality rate was nearly 80%, accounting for all children who were miscarried, stillborn, or failed to thrive after birth, or died of health-related issues before the age of five. For contrast, the high death rate of the local peasantry living at the same time was nowhere near that high. So people living in terrible conditions were still having a higher rate of success in birth than the Habsburgs were simply because their genetic line was becoming so weak and non-diverse. What's the most notable problem, though? Uh, the one that makes everyone frankly grab their phones to look up Google pictures was Charles II of Spain. Oh, this is going to be interesting. Yeah. It's an example of everything that we've just been discussing. Oh, yeah. it's. Uh, I, I feel bad for this guy because not only did he have to deal with all of these issues, his sister was miraculously fine, which is a shame. There's a genetic lottery and the social lottery. Yeah. It's just a roll of the dice a lot of the time. Yeah. Uh, and I should say that um, his sister, when I say she was fine, I mean, she still carried... Lots and lots of, of, of Habsburg issues, but not the same way that uh, Charles II of Spain did. It would have had to be difficult to be the male heir carrying all of these issues and seeing your sister not carry them. But we'll, we'll go back. Um, Charles II's parents were uncle and niece. At this point, both uncle and niece individually were also the product of uncle and niece inbreeding for several generations previous. But they were desperate for a male heir, and Charles was born, and there was much rejoicing, although nobody expected him to live very long after birth, because he had several deformities. His underbite was so pronounced that he was unable to articulate speech and incapable of eating most solid food. He couldn't adequately chew as a result and, drew, and drooled constantly. Poor guy. Solid food is the best food. I know. Solid food's great. And the worst part was, just to give some idea of how severe this underbite was, his teeth didn't touch. Like, the front teeth and the back teeth did not touch at all. That's how severe the, the, the underbite was. Charles was mentally delayed and appears to have suffered from fits of epilepsy. Uh, he also may have had hip dysplasia. What the records indicate was that he wasn't able to walk, didn't learn to walk until he was eight. And his stretcher was very, very small, which is common among a long line of, of, of line breeding, of inbreeding. 
and his head was awkwardly shaped, and he was reported to have wept fluid constantly from both of his eyes. He, although he learned to walk, couldn't really support himself or stand for very long, so he was bedridden very, very early in age. It was described that he essentially went from a prolonged infancy and then drastically into premature age. He wasn't educated for fear that the strain on his brain would uh, be harmful to his development. As was the science at the time. As was the science at the time. And he was visibly dirty at court because he wasn't expected to be able to wash himself. He had morbid fascinations with death and appeared to have an almost infantilized interest in court etiquette. But regardless, by the time he was 35, he was unable to walk, going blind, going deaf, prone to rages, sterile, and constantly on the verge of his deathbed. Baffling the courts because he never actually died. There was actually record of people saying that despite his incredible illnesses, he's baffling everyone by his ability to continue to live. But for some context, a genetic analysis of Charles revealed that his parents were more genetically similar than full-blooded sets of siblings. So if two siblings had a child together, that child would still be more genetically diverse than Charles was. He was married twice. His first wife, Maria of Orleans, was also a relation. Her father was also her uncle. And when she found out she was going to be married to Charles, her father was reported to have said that it was impossible for him to have made a better match for her politically. And her response was to have told him that you could have done so much better for your niece. Just kind of a cutting bite, wouldn't you say? Yeah, but you play the cards you're dealt, unfortunately. Yeah, so she was very depressed by the marriage. Despite that, though, her and Charles did attempt to sire a child, but that could not happen. Very likely, this is because Charles was probably sterile. Yeah, it's kind of that idea where if you have an incomplete set of genomes, oftentimes sterility will be the result. For instance, seedless watermelons. Yeah. No seeds. Yeah, so Charles was a big old seedless watermelon, and uh, there weren't going to be any, any more watermelons. Like, I guess nature has its way of yeah. figuring these things out. And sterility is a result of that. So he eventually, Maria Louisa died, and he did get remarried to a more, air quotes here, fertile line of the Habsburgs. Um, but again, no dice, no children were ever conceived from that marriage. Finally, uh, Charles did die just shy of his 39th birthday, and he is reported to have said, many people tell me that I am bewitched and I will believe it. Such are the things I experience and suffer. Uh, later research has sort of shown that before people have seizures, they often see sights, smells, sounds. It's called an aura. Perhaps he's referring to one of those, or they think some latent schizophrenia. Who knows what it was like inside of his head? However, he very much acknowledged what he was feeling. He was called by the peasantry uh, Charles the Hexed. Charles um, the Hexed. Yeah, they called him, he was called uh, Charles, the, Charles the Hexed. And things get a little bit weirder here, though, because... Uh, with his death and no successor, Spain was thrust into civil war, and his autopsy was very bizarre. The report of the body included this thing. The body did not contain a single drop of blood. His heart was the size of a peppercorn. His lungs were corroded, his intestines rotten and gangrenous, and he had a single testicle, black as coal, and his head was full of water. Now, there's been a lot of speculation over what exactly this means, because it seems pretty unbelievable to have a heart the size of a peppercorn, but some people have suggested that perhaps the autopsy uh, the person conducting the autopsy wasn't trained and maybe didn't know that blood will coagulate, thus giving the impression of both there being no drop of blood, but also that the intestines would look deeply gangrenous and rotten if that was the case. Any idea about the heart? Yeah, some necrosis going on, perhaps um, far after the time of his death. Who knows what time that happened? Uh, hydrocephaly, you'd have a weird fluid shift. Perhaps there was some dehydration going on prior to the autopsy. 
um, a lot of fluid shifting around. So yeah, you can have some pretty odd images of uh, what his autopsy would look like. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure Guillermo del Toro would have a uh, kind of an interesting take on that if it was ever in a movie. I mean, that really is the beginning of the end for the Habsburgs. And to be fair, it had been happening for quite a while by this point. Like, this is an extreme case because the Spanish line was so tightly looped. But by this point, um, and, and, and Charles II just did die. He died in 1700. So there's still some time left to go for the, the Habsburg Empire. But this is an example of its great decline beginning. They've lost a franchise. They did. And they really were a franchise when you think about it like that. When we leave the Habsburgs, we, we leave them at the fall of the Spanish Habsburgs, but really it's a slow decline for the Habsburg Empire from there. In reality, the decline was a lot more like the Roman Empire. Lights were going off and they were slowly sliding into nothingness. Um, obviously, Marie Antoinette's line was, uh, was done with the French Revolution, which ended the Royal Habsburg line in France. But slowly, civil unrest begins to burn through Europe. The political climate, the public temperaments change, people want more democracy as their kingdoms fall, so do the Habsburgs. Even when ones make alliances outside of the family in an attempt to keep both their power and their bloodline going, they have difficulty keeping their powerful families together. The death of Emperor Franz Joseph in 1916, after his 68-year reign, really marked the symbolic end of the monarchy. But in reality, the monarchy didn't collapse until the First World War, in the autumn of 1918, when Emperor Karl, the successor, abdicated and new nation-states were established in the former Habsburg territories. This is also happening at the same time that the Habsburg descendant, Archduke Franz Ferdinand, was assassinated with his wife, prompting the start of World War I. His wife Sophie was shot in the abdomen, and he himself was shot in the neck. His tragic last words were then to say to his wife, Don't die, my darling. Live for our children. When he was rushed to the hospital and asked, Are you suffering badly? He responded to have said, It is nothing. It is nothing. It is nothing before dying. Oh, forget Monty Python's Black Knight. Tis but a scratch. <laughs> yeah. Way to, way to understate it. <laughs> like, he's shot in the neck. He's, he's not doing so hot. Even though this death was the most massive, and these successions were the ends of Habsburgs as royalty, the Habsburgs themselves didn't die out. There are many Habsburg descendants alive today, notably stemming from Otto von Habsburg, born in 1911 and marrying his wife, Princess Regina. The union, which produced seven children and multiple, multiple grandchildren, at this point their titles are really political placeholders. And while their name certainly carries historical importance, it doesn't hold the world empire crumbling weight that it used to. Otto von Habsburg died in 2011 at the age of 98. Wow, when you think about current history. Mm-hmm. Like, there are still Habsburgs, like, alive and well today, and there are still Habsburg descendants who live in Tyrol Castle. Wow. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, yeah, they they had crazy, crazy underbites and, like, Habsburg lips and all that jazz and high foreheads, but they also were fabulously wealthy. I don't know. Would you, would you uh, take the trade-off? Ooh. Fair enough. But no one can deny that these people were absolutely influential to history and that they... Very much so. Yes, and that they still carry weight today. And the mark they have left on the history of Europe cannot be forgotten. And never will. And thus, the great lives of the House of Habsburg continues. (laughs) And their story comes to a close. All right. Well, that's all we got for this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. Yes, indeed. Yeah, and I'll... Good night forever. I don't know how it's getting at